Gracious God, our Father, here, your people are before you this morning assembled, singing your praises, acknowledging Christ, our only hope, placing ourselves again under his body broken for us, torn, and his blood spilled for us, renewing this covenant with you. And we come here this morning, we come now to your word, and Lord, we are exposed. Our hearts are laid bare before you. Would you deal gently with us? But would you not hold back in revealing to us what we need to know so that you might continue your mighty work? Lord, for we need to be changed. We need the power of your word speaking. We need, Holy Spirit, you to work that we might be sanctified and grown and become more like Christ Jesus. We need you here this morning, and so we ask that. All to your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Question, do you think that there is a problem with hate in the world today? Not, not at all, right? Follow-up question, since I know the answer to that one. Um, do you think that that is new? Do you think that's unique in this generation? Let me ask the same question, but in a slightly more positive way, if you will. What if we could eliminate all hate in the hearts of all human beings by a snap of our fingers? My question to you would be, what percentage of the world's problems do you believe would disappear instantaneously? It'd be a big number, wouldn't it? Jean-Claude is a 1994 Rwanda genocide survivor. Compassion International reports his story. It started on April 6th, 1994. The Rwandan president's plane was shot down, and Hutu militias heeded this as the call to begin their mission to exterminate all Tutsis. For 100 days, these citizen militias shot and hacked their way across the country. They killed more than 800,000 people. Jean-Claude was 11 years old on that day. The genocide against the Tutsis began, and neighbors, kids who he had played with, their families who his family had had over for dinner and spent time in their home, these Hutus came and began to kill his family and their other neighbors. Jean-Claude witnessed what no boy ever should. He says the Hutus killed the Tutsis, but Hutus were not people who came from other countries or far away. They were our neighbors. They were our friends. Tragically, as Jean-Claude hid in the bushes, he watched his neighbors tortured, mutilated, and murdered his father. He also witnessed the murder of his sister, of his aunts, and his uncles. This didn't just, this didn't just happen. He witnessed them. His mother was beaten, but she wasn't killed. She's lived with a mental disability as a result of the injuries from that day ever since. After the genocide, Jean-Claude wondered, how can he move on? Through the work of a Christian ministry and through the power of the gospel, Jean-Claude experienced the impossible. He learned not only to not hate, he learned how to forgive, he even learned how to love. Eventually, Jean-Claude came to know Jesus, and he made the choice to forgive those who had murdered his family, and his forgiveness went beyond just words. He graduated from school, and he started a nonprofit called Best Family Rwanda to help poor and orphaned children, of which there were many. He made the conscious decision to help both Hutu and Tutsi children. 
Amazingly, he chose to sponsor the child of his father's murderer. Most of the children are Hutu, he said, from the families who committed the genocide. If I could not forgive, I would say no. I will only help Tutsi, only genocide survivors. But I had one child sponsored in my organization whose father was in the group that killed my father. They were neighbors. After the genocide, the father was imprisoned for his crime. So when I was selecting children to help, I said, bring his orphan. He doesn't have a father. That is what forgiveness is. Today, Jean-Claude has a relationship with the son of his father's murderer. He loves him, and he cares for the boy's need. Jean-Claude's act of radical forgiveness displays the power of the gospel to utterly transform hearts. If our religion can't address the hate of our fallen hearts, then it is worthless. Because every human being struggles with hate in the heart. And I say religion, not just faith, because that is what the world has. Many, many kinds of religion. And the question is, can your religion address the hate in your heart? And if it can't, then ultimately it's worthless. We come today to the sixth of the Ten Commandments, and as usual, we find that it exposes our hearts. Um, I had kind of thought that of the ten, there's probably one that I, I might be able to check off. Like, okay, I'm doing good on one. I'll start working for, you know, the next few decades of my life and try and maybe get a second one. Uh, thus far in the Ten Commandments, I'm, uh, I'm batting triple zero up to this point, And I don't expect that uh, that's going to improve either today or anytime else later in the list. In fact, I will humbly confess to you that... Um, I, uh, yesterday at the coffee shop, I believe, I committed murder. Um, I've talked with the Lord about that. As usual, as we come to the sixth of the Ten Commandments, we find that it exposes our hearts, it magnifies our need, and it shows us God's magnificent and mighty grace, hope for the hateful heart. As usual, you have the hand out there. It will address a number of other topics that we won't delve into today, but that you might consider on your own and also help round out the context. Let me begin then this morning. Let us start with looking at this commandment and trying to get a right understanding, a right understanding. I'm just going to read it to you from memory. Okay, I've already memorized Exodus 20, verse 13 this week. Are you ready? You'll have it memorized in 10 seconds too. You shall not murder. That's our passage for this morning. Tell me, though, even if you have never memorized Scripture in your life, I bet you can answer this question. Can you tell me what is the translation of Exodus 20.13 in the King James Version? Thou shalt not kill, right? Good, you guys all knew that one. Many folks who have never darkened the door of a church do as well. Thou shalt not kill. What I want to begin with this morning is laying for us, helping us see a right understanding of what this commandment is, and that's highlighted by the difference in these two translations. Thou shalt not kill is fine insofar as it goes. The problem is the Hebrew has several words that mean to kill. The word that's used here in the sixth commandment is interesting, is that in Scripture it applies only to unlawful killing. In fact, there in your handout, don't look at it now, you'll find some places where uh, it is applied and where it is not applied. And so the point is 
that the Sixth Commandment does not categorically prohibit all killing. Rather, it prohibits only unlawful killing. And when we talk about what is unlawful, this is not or whatever the laws of any given society says is right or wrong. This is not according to the laws of man. It's what is lawful according to the law of God. And every society is judged in light of that. So a society can legalize abortion if it chooses. It can legalize physician-assisted suicide. It can even give it a fancy euphemistic name like medical assistance in dying. And yet still it's an abomination because it is not according to the law of God and it is a violation of the sixth commandment. And so while it may not be perfect as a translation from the Hebrew word chratzak, the best English word probably is the word murder. It does about a 90% overlap, I think. You shall not murder for what the right understanding is in the translation or, or in, the, in the language originally given. So when Yahweh establishes his people there at the foot of Mount Sinai, he sets upon them a cardinal prohibition against the unlawful taking of human life by another human. No people, no society can exist without this prohibition in one way or another. In fact, most every society that exists maintains this prohibition, even if they're terribly inconsistent in the manner in which they keep it. The question then for most societies is not really even the question, is murder wrong? Because most everyone will say yes, absolutely, most. The real question is why? Why is murder wrong? Secondly then, a right understanding. Now secondly, the right reason why it's wrong. Let's talk about the right reason why it's wrong. Murder and all of its related prohibitions are only wrong if man is given unique dignity by his creator. I'll say that again. Murder and all of its related prohibitions are only wrong if God has given man a unique dignity, if our maker has granted us special dignity. Dennis Prager is just one of many who have said this down through the ages with clarity. He says this, without a God who is the source of morality, morality is just a matter of opinion. He goes on to quote a New York Times article that recently interviewed a college professor who said this, the overwhelming majority of college freshmen view all moral claims as mere opinions. And that was in the context of the prohibition against murder. The vast majority of college freshmen view all moral claims as matters of mere opinion. Okay, murder is wrong. We kind of all agree it's wrong. Do you agree it's wrong on a college campus? Sure, yeah. Okay, why is the question. For the believer, the answer is not only clear, but it's profound. Because only humans are made in the image of God. To do violence to another human being is to do violence to the image of God. In fact, it's the very reason why the command for capital punishment in Genesis chapter 9 is given. Ironically, one of the lawful reasons to take a life is because somebody has so defamed God by taking the life of another person, so therefore their life is forfeit. 
capital punishment. I'm just, I'm not arguing for it overall. There's a huge debate about whether or not it's even correctly applied in our society today, and that's an important debate. But fundamentally, you cannot argue against capital punishment based upon the Sixth Commandment. And in fact, Genesis chapter 9 will say, it is because of the dignity of man that the taking of man's life is required in capital punishment in Genesis chapter 9. What is the point of all of this? Because I'm taking you on a bit of a rabbit trail just trying to get some ground under our feet. The world that we live in today believes truths that it has no idea why it believes. There's a wonderful book I would commend to you by uh, Glenn Scrivener called The Air We Breathe. It is basically a tracing of the uh, Judeo-Christian Western ethic and why it is that people even value compassion and tolerance and care for the weak and dozens of other things. It's because of a Judeo-Christian background that our society today has long since removed itself from, and yet they still have the hangover of all of those beliefs and yet have no idea why. The reason why it's wrong is because Genesis 1 says, let's make man in our image, male and female. He created them. Darwinism does not answer, cannot answer why you should not murder. Darwinism, in fact, kind of encourages it because it's survival of the fittest. So whoever can murder the most is probably most likely to be around the longest, right? The right reason why it's wrong, a right understanding. Now then let's look rightly at the problem. What is the problem with murder? If you're there then in Matthew 15, let's begin to see the problem that we have when it comes to this. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 15, and he's um, just been taken to task by the Pharisees for the fact that he and his disciples break the commandment of keeping the Sabbath and that they don't appropriately honor the ceremonial cleanness rules. And so Jesus, as he always does, don't you love it, takes some shallow, surfacy complaint and immediately goes to the heart of the matter. Uh, Matthew 15, 15, uh, Peter says to Jesus, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Here's what I want to turn to, which is why I'm not even spending time with the parable. Here's the point that Jesus brings, the heart of the matter. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and these defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, here it is, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Where do murders come from? Answer, the heart. Not from the hand, not even from the mind, but they come from the center of our being and our will. What Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19 tell us then, what Jesus authoritatively tells us then, is that murder is a heart problem. This is the problem we have. Murder is a heart problem. Now I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Or if you don't want to flip there, you can just write down 1 John 3.15. We have the same thing spoken there by um, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle John. 
writing in chapter 3, verse 15 of 1 John. He says this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Matthew 15, Jesus tells us that, that murder is a heart problem. John clarifies further, and he tells us that murder is a hate problem. That's why it's a heart problem. Murder is a hate problem. And this is what we've seen throughout as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, as we rightly understand the law. If the act itself is wrong, then what that means is that the roots which lead to that act, the motives that lead to that act, they themselves are wrong as well. Murder's a heart problem. Murder's a hate problem. We also find a third issue right here in this verse at the end. 1 John 3.15, again, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that, oops, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Wait, 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 no, no, that's not fair. Because if, if you're talking about eternal life and you're saying that, that murderers don't have eternal life, then surely that's only the people who like really actually do murder. Yeah, it's in the same verse, right? Where the context is that murder is a heart and a hate problem. So thirdly, we find murder is an eternal life problem. Murder is an eternal life problem. You can just jot down, I'll read it to you from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, says this. I'll back up to 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Or lastly, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Here in the middle of Galatians 5, we have the listing of what are known as the uh, fruits of the Spirit, but also just before that, aptly named the fruits of the flesh. Back up to uh, verse 19, Galatians 5, 19, and we start that list. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. But now when we get to verse 20, I want you to notice we're going to be given a continuing list of the deeds of the flesh. How many of these items in the list would actually fall under the sixth commandments. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. I would argue that those last seven or eight all would fall under the prohibition of the sixth of the Ten Commandments. And what does it say about that list of things? Finish with verse 21. And things like these of which I forewarn you, Paul writes, Galatians 5, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Murder is a heart problem. Murder is a hate problem. And murder is an eternal life problem. It's a kingdom problem. So to say the same thing a different way, is that our problem with murder is that it's a human problem for all humanity. Our problem with murder is that we have a problem with murder. Or to say it more specifically, our problem with murder is that we have a problem with murdering. There wasn't any blood, but 
I committed it yesterday. This is the problem that we have. Friends, I won't delve any more deeply than I already have because it would not take but a cursory thought to pause and consider our attitudes and actions, our words and our motives, and, and even the very, um, just the thoughts and, and, and of our hearts to convince ourselves we murder and we do it regularly. So let's, let's talk about this problem, but let's do it with a goal towards our hope. What is the hope for hateful hearts? Because here's the thing. If our faith can't address the hate of our hearts, then it's worthless. Are you optimistic? I am. And if you know Christ, you are too. Praise be to God for the all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-satisfying death of Christ, work of Christ, person of Christ. Let's then talk about hope for the hateful heart. Here's what I want to do this morning. Go to Matthew chapter 5. I've purposely skipped over this passage, which is kind of the, the pinnacle of the passage we think of when we apply the sixth commandment in our context, because Jesus does that in Matthew 5. I purposely, purposely skipped over it because what I want to do is walk through the whole thing and find the scandalous revelation of the need of our hearts the amazing turn that the Spirit of God in us using the Word of God does, and then the incredible power that God has to make a change. In fact, I want to do it by, by working in tandem with another passage in James 4. I put both of those there in your notes. They're just jotted down there. But Lord willing, let's walk through those together and see what the Lord may have us. First, let's turn to the Word and let this scalpel reveal to us. Matthew 5, um, start in verse 21. Jesus says, this is Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Does Jesus take the sixth of the Ten Commandments and bring it to uh, an extension, an addition to what's, what its initial intention was? Answer, no. Because the good Jew understood, actually, that the law as given always had implications both for the external and the internal always had implications both, whether it was a prohibition, then it would also have duties, or whether it was a duty, it would also entail prohibitions. This is what we've been doing throughout our walk through the Ten Commandments, and there's notes on your handout to that effect to give you the details of all of those. What Jesus is doing is he's calling a wayward group of religious leaders back to the original intent. And he says, guys, it was always about the heart and you knew it. It was meant to be an exposition of a problem that was intrinsic to all mankind, and yet it was so deep, and it was so pervasive, and it was so difficult that you had no other hope but to run back to God in light of his word exposing you and say, oh Lord, have mercy on me, and find him afresh as a savior. 
And so Jesus is pressing in. He's leaning in on these because he says, salvation is here in me, man. But you're missing the fact that you need me. You don't understand how deeply you need me. You've heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. But I say that everyone who's angry with his brother, who speaks a word of offense, or to interpret it or say it another way, or who has hate in his heart, has committed murder. By the way, this is a good place to just inject on your handout on page two. You will see that there is a time when hate is right. That could be, uh, that could be next week's uh, message if we wanted. Um, I wanted to give an extended uh, response to that. Because when there is evil in our world, it is appropriate for God's people to respond with hate. Because wisdom demands it, Proverbs. Because God's people did it, David and others. And because God himself promises it. Well, that's the other side of this coin. The issue here is not hating the evil that men do. The issue here is just hating men. And the problem is we typically do it for the most selfish reasons. Well, this is where Jesus makes the connection and shows us our hearts need help. Hold your finger in Matthew 5, because we're going to go back and forth a couple of times, but turn to James chapter 4, if you would. James chapter 4. A couple of our brothers took us through um, the book of James here. Uh, I think that was, uh, well, it took, it took a number of months. Um, I don't remember when we were in James 4, but they've covered this. But I'm just going to go through both passages and put the pieces together. Hatred and anger are murder. That's what Jesus says. All right? How about James? What does James say? Lust and envy. Guess what? They're also murder. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Question. Do those violate the sixth commandment? Yes. Quarrels and conflicts. Unless we're living in perfect righteousness, there is a time to fight the good fight and stand for truth. But that's not the context here. What is the reason for you breaking the sixth commandment? Jesus, uh, pardon me, James, the half-brother of Jesus, could write in chapter 4, verse 1, and he gives the reason. Is not the source your pleasures or your lusts that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Hatred and anger are murder. Lust and envy, then, are murder. Well, that's a problem. So what in the world are we to do? Hold your finger here and go back to Matthew 5. Let's see where Jesus now takes his audience to say, here's how you should respond in light of this revelation. Pick up in verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. I want you to notice two things. He gives a scenario of a person in worship, and he says, even if you are there in worship and you find that there is an issue of hate, how high of a priority is it that you deal with it? Answer, even more important than that you come to worship with me. By the way, do you know the tradition behind um, right after the first song and, and then the music person says, okay, we'll turn around and hug somebody. Greet your friend, you know, whatever. You know, you know what the tradition is behind that? 
historically in church history, that is called the passing of the peace. And at some point in the service, the passing of the peace would happen before the congregation shared in communion. You want to know why? It was so that the people of God could ensure that they were reconciled to their brothers and sisters before they came and they took of the body and blood of Christ at the table. That's what the passing of the peace is supposed to be. It is, it is the opportunity to go to your friend and say, you know what, as I came here this morning, I realized there's something broken between us. And I can't continue unless we deal with this. That is Matthew 5 kind of stuff. Here's the second thing. And boy, if you're not under uh, a heavy load yet, I know you're not, right? Not yet. Here it comes. What is the nature of the hatred or the heart problem in verses 23 and 24? Answer, if your brother has something against you. The sixth commandment extends not only to us dealing with the hardness of our heart towards our brothers and sisters, but also lays upon us at least some measure of a responsibility to deal for the good of our brothers and sisters with the state of their hearts toward us. You can jot down Romans 12, 18 at this point if you want, which we uh, mentioned briefly last week, as far as it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone, acknowledging that it takes two to tango. But we have a responsibility of our own, and it's right here in Matthew chapter 5. Here's the point of what's happening in the flow of the thought as Jesus tells, hey, you guys heard of this command, but let me bring you back to what it meant, and you guys know better, Pharisees. This is a hard issue. And so if you're experiencing any measure of conviction at this point, Jesus says to his audience, then let me tell you what a high priority it is. With hate in your heart, or if you've helped create hate in your brother's heart, you go and you address that, even, even before you come and stand before me in worship. When the Spirit brings conviction of the hatred, of the need, of the shortcoming, notice, isn't it just like Jesus to go straight to the heart and say, I, I, yes, I want you to confess, I want you to repent, I want you to admit that, but I want you to reconcile. At least pursue it, at least make the effort, at least manage, not manage, that's a terrible word, at least cast yourself upon me for the help to pursue it. What a priority comes. And then Jesus gives a second example in verse 25 of pursuing friendship. If, if a brokenness, if a hatred has gone so far that somebody's taking you to court, he says, don't let court happen. Go and pursue the friendship. In our, in our litigious and um, adversarial society, this is nearly impossible to do this one. You have to have almost an entirely different way that lawsuits come about. Uh, nowadays, if somebody's suing you, uh, if you were to go and try and reconcile with them, uh, chances are they'd pull a restraining order on you. Uh, God may call you to try it. If he does, do it. Uh, but this is a different context in that sense. 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. The point of that is to seek friendship even when things have gone so far, it has to be a lawsuit. Now let's go back to James chapter 4. How is it? How is it then that we do this? Because this is incredibly difficult. For you, it's incredibly difficult for me. It's not natural. It's miraculous. 
Back to James 4, let's pick up in verse 3. Notice where he takes the sufferer here, who has strife, who has hate, who is producing quarrels. And he says, let me show you what's behind this. You ask and do not receive, 4.3, because you ask with wrong motives, so you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The point there, Christ says, wrong motives and friendship with worldly thinking, friendship with the world. Those are things we've got to confess. We've got to admit, if you've been wronged, if I've been wronged, and I'm finding it sore, it aches, it, it's a burn in me, and I can do nothing but hate, a good place to go and begin is to go back and say, why do I hate so badly? Maybe I'm thinking the way the world thinks. And I'm not thinking the way God thinks. I've become a friend of the world's ways in this. Yes, there is another side of it. If evil has been done to me, then it's okay to hate that evil. That's the other side that we're not going to have time to talk about today. But there is a place for me to go and search my motives. Five, or do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He, that's God, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So right here on the heels of him saying, you've broken the sixth commandment and you've done it because of all this heart and motive that's in you and envy and lust and strife. And now it's because you're so aligned with the world. Now let me just tell you that God in heaven is jealous. Question. Is that good news or bad news? Answer. It's terribly good news. <laughs> terribly good news. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. I've commented on this passage before. Our brothers who took us through James did. It's a, it's a famously difficult passage to translate because it is uh, complex in the original Greek. But the point is this, at the end of the day, God's jealousy makes him passionately committed both to his glory and to his children. That's the point of James 4.5. God's jealousy makes him passionately committed to his glory and to his children. The proof of that is going to unfold in the coming verses, so I'll go forward with you in it. And this is the solution. We come back and we go, God, you desire to have glory in this situation even more than I desire to get my glory. Would you work here? out of your wondrously perfect, sanctifying jealousy? You, Lord, desire the spirit that dwells in me to be at one with you and be at peace with you and be reconciled not only to this brother or this sister, but with you. You desire that even more than I ever could. So would you come and do your mighty work? And so here's where we see why it is such good news. Verse six, but he gives greater grace. There it says, God, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable. This is just what the, the outer expression of repentance would look like in some cases if it's genuine. Be miserable and mourn and, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Our solution is found where? In the glorious, holy, sanctifying jealousy of our Savior. 
And it encourages us to do what? In humility, to repent, wash our hands, turn. And what does it promise? Grace. It promises grace. If we say, you know what? The issue is not that I have a fight with my friend or my family member. Lord, the issue before you is that my heart hates and my heart seethes and my heart lusts and my heart is envious. That's my problem. And God says, I love to give grace to those who know that. And what is the end result of all of this? As it is so often, you can find this same dynamic in 1 Peter chapter 1. The result is glory. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Have you experienced that? Through the power of the gospel? Have you ever seen the healing of a relationship because someone, maybe it was you, or maybe it was your brother or sister came to you and they said, you know what, I just, I want you to know I hate your guts. But I'm so sorry. And I've admitted that to God. And, I, and, and whatever you may have done to me, whether deserved or not, I, I don't even care. I just want you to know, I just want you to know that before the Lord I have to get this right. And so I'm, I'm here, man, and I, I have asked God to forgive me because I know I have created hate in you, and I want your healing. And, and I know that I have let hate reign in me, and I want my healing. Yeah, God is jealous for his glory. And verses 5 and 6 could mean that God could get himself glory by judging us for our sin, by bringing us wrath. He would be righteous to do it, and all the angels would praise his name if he did. But verse 6 says he gives a greater grace. He says, no, I think I have a different game plan for this. Brothers and sisters, we fail miserably, but he is the only remedy. All right, go back one last time to Matthew 5. I've given you the positive motivation. Let us look together now for you and for me, because I need both, the negative motivator. And let's remember where the Matthew 5 passage ended. Make friends quickly with your opponent, verse 25, at law, while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you'll not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Those who are comfortable with murder in their hearts, who make this a way of their life, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the judge will condemn them, the powers of the judge will toss them into the place of bondage, and they will stay there until they have paid every last drop. That's the warning that Jesus gives, and he's a fairly loving uh, savior. That's the warning that, that Jesus gives to us. And so the point is, let's just not get comfortable. I, I, I just can't allow myself to get comfortable. I say, Lord, if necessary, even make me uncomfortable with the fact that I'm comfortable with this anger in my heart, because it is not of you. Paying the last drop. 
What did Jesus do? You're there in Matthew 5. To close this morning, flip with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. It's a passage you know. It is Christ in great travail on the night of his betrayal and arrest. He's there in the garden and his closest friends have come with him. Not even just the 12, but the very closest three. And yet even they have failed him so that he is betrayed and he is utterly alone except for his father. And they're in prayer before his father because he knows what he will do. And he comes and he asks, is there any way we can do this differently? Verse 42, Jesus went away again a second time and he prayed saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. He had just mentioned in verse 39, the cup. Question, what is the cup? It's a, it's a deep and, and uh, uh, pervasive thread throughout Hebrew scriptures. It is the cup of God's wrath. And the Son of God is about to go drink it down. Every last drop. You see, this is what you and I deserve, and this is what the Sixth Commandment shows us. I have a murder problem because I have a problem with murdering. And I do it without even knowing I'm doing it. In fact, it's become so natural that I actually think that it's um, an okay thing. But the Lord says, no, let that remind you and, and let the severity of the judgment, I tell you, bring you back to me because you are due the wrath of God. Just for this one of the Ten Commandments, friends, I am due the wrath of God down to the last drop. But the Lord Jesus says, if there is no other way, then let me drink it. And drink it down, he did. And so some of us here this morning, it, it, it doesn't, does not matter the Sunday of the year that we study this passage. There will be somebody, there will be some buddies in this congregation who would say, that was so unfair that you did that this week. And if it's you this week, it'll be me next week or the week after. But see the grace that Jesus points us to. As he says, there is hope for the hateful heart. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, you are amazing in your knowledge of the human soul. You know the inner workings and the inner intricacies of our spirit and our heart. You know our brokenness fully. And we praise you for that because nothing is hidden from you or from your word. Lord, we are murderers. We come this morning with blood on our hands. And we openly and freely confess it. We admit to you, we cannot keep this command. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you have shown us that Christ did. He who hung on the cross as they murdered him unlawfully said, Father God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Apostle Peter in Acts 2 preached to the Jewish leaders who performed the crucifixions and the crowd who called for it and they said what must we do to be saved and he said repent and turn each of you 
Believe and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because there is forgiveness. Father, we ask for anyone here today who has maybe not reckoned with the depth of their need before you to see that even just this one simple command that they might think they could have kept, they realize they've woefully fallen short. What a glorious, wonderful revelation that would be. What a gift from you to know that today. If also with it, you would draw them to you. Friend, if you're here today, lay down all your defenses. Run to the Savior. Know that he drank down every last drop of your penalty and come under his grace. Cry out for the Savior. He will forgive. He will make you whole. He will transform and he will create in you a love like Jean-Claude, like so many others have experienced to do the miraculous and the impossible even if, you, even if you don't think it could happen, even if you don't think you want it. Turn to him because he's a mighty Savior. Father, for us this week, keep us walking with eyes towards you. Give us opportunities this week to be not peacekeepers, but peacemakers, to bring peace into our relationships, to seek to reconcile, and even to do such good as to protect and secure our brothers' and sisters' hearts and friends' hearts from the hatred that assaults them. Oh, Lord, our God, this is what we want. This is what we ask as we go today. All for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.